You are now entering the transit zone. May I ask you one simple question? Your main and only reason for coming today? Uh, to protest with the rest of Melbourne for here. Uh, what are you protesting about? I'm protesting about the war. Yes, well, it's very much the same thing. I just, I think the war in Vietnam is becoming progressively and more obviously evil, and I'm here to protest it. Will you be going with this great throng down into the heart of the city? Certainly. The marchers have headed up Spring Street, turned the corner at Parliament House, and the head of the line is now coming down Burke Street towards the General Post Office. Ahead of the marchers, by about a hundred yards, a group of some 25 to 30 young people, dressed in black, wearing red headbands, white faces, scratches and bloodstains on their faces, known as the Australian Performing Group. And every few hundred yards on the march route, they are forming circles and lines and giving out with some kind of a dance and a song which follows on each occasion. We will abolish conscription forthwith. Not just because a volunteer army is a better army, but because it's intolerable that a free nation at peace and not under threat should cull by lottery the best of its youth to provide defence on the cheap. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. Miranda Burton is a graphic artist and writer based here in Melbourne. Despite delays caused by the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdowns, she finally succeeded in having her graphic novel, Underground, Marsupial Outlaws and Other Rebels of Australia's War in Vietnam, launched in fine style recently at Melbourne Trades Hall. Underground is a finely wrought graphic novel with a real density of layered content that melds the personal journeys of activist and former Victorian Labor MP Jean McLean, Vietnam War veteran Bill Cantwell and Vietnamese refugee activist Mai Ho. Australian artist Clifton Pugh also features, and Wombats. Most of us are used to absorbing historical detail and interpretation through words on the printed page, or perhaps via television documentaries. The graphic novel form, redolent of comic book visual language, is a distinctly different experience for many. So, how does a graphic novel of 272 pages focused on the Vietnam War and the profoundly vexed policy of conscription come together coherently and meaningfully? Well, we're about to find out. Miranda Burton, welcome to The Transit Zone. Thank you for having me, Peter. And thank you for this book. I've so thoroughly enjoyed it. I did connect with my childhood because enjoying a graphic novel these days does connect me with that joy of reading a good comic. Wonderful. They're very diverse in their subject matter now, which has made the medium far more exciting, I think, over the years. And that's something we're going to explore during our conversation today. But first of all, Miranda, take us back to the very beginning of this underground graphic novel project, which has been a long project for you personally as a creator. Can you, after all that you've done, actually 
take us back in time. Wind the tape back to the sparking point where you said, I'm, I'm going to do this and it's going to be about the Vietnam War or conscription. What was the nub of that sparking point? Well, the seeding ground for this project was uh, during a residency that I undertook for two years at a, a property called Dunmuchen. I lived in the former studio of the late Australian artist Clifton Pugh. It was here that I was able to pursue my own work, but I just stumbled across a story told by Clifton Pugh's son, Shane Pugh, about a wombat that had been conscripted by his parents, allegedly, as an act of civil disobedience during the conscription period of, of Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War. And I was very intrigued by this story, and I had to follow the wombat, so to speak, go down the burrow and find out a little bit more. And I, I found some archives that described this wombat and that he had in fact gone underground when his call-up papers had arrived. And that was all true. And that was really the start. And of course, I didn't know a huge amount about the war in Vietnam from an Australian perspective or any perspective, really. So that's when my research really had to begin. Hence the title, of course, Underground, not only about this wonderful wombat with the labyrinth of burrows underneath the ground there, but also it refers to perhaps the underground network that Jean McLean, whom we'll speak about in a moment, really the central character of the novel, isn't she? So it also refers, I guess, to that, underground, protest, all that is captured by that by that title, Underground. Exactly. So what lens did you bring to the story in the early stages, before you started your research, was there a family perspective on this at all? Not at all, because my parents uh, are not Australian. So really, I was bringing pure curiosity, also an interest in social justice, also an awareness of, I guess, the mistakes of history. I mean, I have not lived through the Vietnam War period, but I have certainly lived through the Iraq and Afghanistan debacles and can see this this holding pattern that we've been in with the, this alliance uh, with the US. It never seems to end well. So if anything, I felt some kind of responsibility to point out that this holding pattern is really not working and that we should be learning from history and we're not. You must have noticed some difference in reactions from old people like me compared to younger, more of your generation and even younger because as I read Underground, a lot of it was so familiar. I mean, Gough Whitlam, Martha Cornwall, Clifton Pugh himself. So you must get a different reaction to this novel, this graphic novel, compared to which generation is reading it. Yes, it's interesting um, because... I was contracted by Alan and Unwin's children's literature department. I was kind of under this obligation to somehow have this conversation with, you know, a younger reader. But in my mind, I really wanted to also engage with an older reader uh, who actually lived through this experience and, and had a never-ending interest in what my older interviewees had to say. It was fascinating learning about a world in Australia before I was born that really shaped history. Yeah, I was very lucky. For you, it essentially was oral history. So in that sense, Miranda, you were able to bring a freshness to it. You are able to process your research, to speak to these people as oral history, and then getting it onto the page. Take us deeper into the research process. There you are in Clifton Pugh's former studio, even in the very space where Gough Whitlam sat for his famous Pew portrait. Was this a sequential series of research projects that then fed into the book? How did you manoeuvre 
what we see on the printed page today with that process of research? Well, I work in a fairly non-linear way, so get ready for the cross-country ramble. I started, after learning of the, the story of the wombat, I actually wrote to one of Clifton Pugh's biographers to to see if she could shed a little bit more light, and she, she sent me a transcript of what she um, had collected from the National Archives or from the newspapers, and, and I really sat on that for, for some time until... I actually wrote a children's book manuscript, in fact, called The Wombat That Wouldn't Do Combat and pitched this to Alan and Unwin and they loved the concept and there I was, you know, feeling all confident that I had it in the bag and then they said, could you write this for an older reader? And that's when I realised that my research had really been cut out for me and so I then had to really start getting those dusty tomes out of the library and trudging through the the more academic history just to understand the the mechanics of it. But also while reading that, knowing that I wasn't interested in creating a graphic novel, like an academic history of this war. And it was really when I became curious enough to talk to people, that's when the history came to life for me, really did. I managed to find this documentary called Save Our Sons, directed by Rebecca McLean, who happens to be the daughter of Jean McLean, who became, of course, the principal character in my book. And this was really the catalyst where I, I wrote to Rebecca and, and said, I'm really interested in your your mother's involvement in Save Our Sons and particularly the fact that she she went to North Vietnam in 1969 and at this stage I had no idea if Jean was even still alive and Rebecca said well you should meet her and so I did and and you know subsequently had a couple of conversations which led me into more research just getting more background about the protest movement perhaps a year after I met Jeannie I went to North Vietnam following in her footsteps and that was a very, very illuminating experience for me, which, you know, where I was able to do an incredible amount of visual research and interview people and even managed to interview someone who invited her to Vietnam in 1969, who happened to be the last living signatory of the Paris Peace Accords of 1973, uh, Madame Nguyen Thi Binh. Straight away, as you said that, it popped into my mind the, the pictures from that sequence in the book where Jean McLean is going to North Vietnam. As a creator, how does that visual research actually being there on location then feed into the imagery? How does that work? In so many ways, because I'm um, looking at the the big picture, the mise-en-scene, uh, so to speak. For example, in Hanoi, the, the central location is the Huan Kiem Lake. And I knew that Jean had stayed near here, the spot. And, and then focusing on the very minute details, like, you know, I even... I went so far as to travel at the same time of year that she did to observe the weather, the the kind of patterns in nature, and and I found myself drawing the leaves, which of course, after coming from Melbourne, were just so incredibly different. You know, the, after seeing being surrounded by spindly eucalyptus leaves, then suddenly in this lush, humid climate with giant leaves, and and imagining Jean walking in this environment and those leaves underfoot. So getting all the 
the realistic references, but also trying to get those small details which I think matter and create the overall feeling that's necessary to take the reader there. I understand better now why, with that background, writing a children's book as the first iteration, why the wombat is that recurring motif in the story. Tell me more, though, about Clifton Pugh. How did he get a gig in this novel? Well, Clifton Pugh happened to be married to Marlene Pugh, who was the principal carer of this wombat. He and Marlene cared for about around 11 wombats over the years, or maybe actually Cliff's third wife was also um, one of the carers of this, these wombats too. So Cliff ties in because he also happens to not only have a relationship with this wombat, but he also paints a portrait of the then leader of the Labour Party, Gough Whitlam, in 1972, over a period of about 11 months, I think. So I did the maths and realised that this unconscientiously objecting wombat that disappeared would have met Gough during his portrait sessions and probably did nip him on the ankle. And that's where I used some of my artistic license uh, as a graphic storyteller and imagined that perhaps Gough dreamt of, you know, the House of Representatives filled with wombats, wondering what he was going to do with conscription policy if he got in. And for me, Clifton Pugh also represented the conflicted man because of his earlier war experience, the, some of the things he said about, oh, well, off to war we go. And he also reflected upon some of the psychology underlying some of the things that various citizens were saying to Jean, etc. So he was the artist, but the conflicted man. Definitely. Yes, good point. He he served in the, the Second World War. Uh, he had extremely traumatic experiences. His painting was an outlet for those experiences, but, but he also had some old-fashioned sentiments at the outset of the Vietnam War, you know, mentioned in the book, he says, I did my bit for military service. Now it's it's the turn for, for young Australians now. And he quickly changed his tune on that and certainly was on board with Jean McLean, who was very opposed to the war and engaged in the cause. He actually supplied a lot of artwork for raffles and fundraisers to support the, the anti-conscription and anti-war movements. Jean McLean, in a sense, was an outsider. She wasn't born in Australia. She came to this country. How do you perceive now that you've created the novel and you've had a fair bit of time with Jean speaking to her, how do you perceive her as an activist? What drives her? Well, yes, you know, she still remains a mystery to me because her passion and commitment is just so astounding. And, you know, she traces it back to her Jewish background and some of the injustices her family experienced when they moved to Australia in the 1930s, also traced back some of her mother's letters that were published in the, the Argus, which talked about this kind of moral obligation to act when faced with injustice, when, when it's right in front of us, we have an obligation to act. And I just, I just think this is the guiding light of who she is. Most people describe her as kind of fearless. And yeah, she does come across as quite fearless. She's an astounding woman and, and her commitment is indefatigable. Yeah. At what point in the process did you, as you moved away from the children's 
wombat book and move into an adult book, did you decide, and on what basis did you decide, Miranda, that Jean was going to be the central character? Well, because she connected with so many people from different worlds, and that really impressed me. And starting with her incredible willingness to enter worlds well outside her comfort zone with her trip to North Vietnam in 1969 when she was then a housewife. It was quite a courageous thing for a woman to do at that time in history. She has this incredible ability to connect with these other worlds and has this strong desire to understand them. Going on from her experiences, trying to understand what people in North Vietnam were experiencing a world that was so shut off from the average Australian. You know, she was also connecting and communicating and sometimes convening with returned veterans of the war from Vietnam in Australia. And of course, when she became involved in politics, she was also working in a in an area where there was a huge proportion of Vietnamese migrant refugees. And so You know, she she was constantly connecting and working with people from other other worlds, which kind of created a world for me in which I could invite the reader to understand the dimensionality of this history. Is the process of creating a novel of this complexity, it's a layered sort of novel, and we'll talk more about the visuality of it in a moment, Do you plot it all in one breath in your mind at some point, like they said about Mozart, he used to conceive of a symphony like that and then wrote out the notes? Or is it an unfolding process like peeling an onion for you? Absolutely, yes, the latter. I mean, of course, in the early phases of drafting, I would have to create some kind of roadmap certainly to please the the publisher. Obviously, the publisher wants to feel confident that, well, at least they think that you know where you're going. um, And I want to convince myself of that too. But I had to surrender many times. My early roadmaps didn't really lead me to where I wanted to go or my heart was telling me, no, this this isn't the story you really set out to write. And I had to be very, very open and prepared to surrender the scaffolding that I was had been clinging to for quite some time. And so the diversion, the branching out to embrace the stories of other characters in the book, and I should mention Bill Cantwell is a significant character in the book. He serves in Vietnam with the Australian Army. And Mai Ho, who comes to Australia as a refugee some time afterwards. So we follow these three journeys, Jean, Bill and Mai. It's the entwining of these journeys which I found so moving and fascinating. And, you know, it spoke volumes about Jean and her ability to connect with other people and understand different points of view. But it also provided this this beautiful dimensional understanding of this history and really humanized the experiences. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark, and our guest is graphic novelist Miranda Burton. Her graphic novel is titled Underground, Marsupial Outlaws and Other Rebels of Australia's War in Vietnam.
Miranda, now some sticky beak questions about how you actually do this. Take us into your studio. I'm just trying to imagine you, and I'll try to imagine you sitting there doing this book. It's a big book. Some of the panels are quite simple, comic book-style panels with perhaps a single shot or a two-shot, two people talking with the dialogue balloons. But some of them are quite big panels with the layers and quite compressed imagery, which draws in lots of different content. A very basic question. How long does it take you to do, say, a page of the novel? Does it take days? Are you a very quick drawer? How does that emerge out of the creative process? For me, the the drawing is relatively quick. I mean, I might spend a day or a day and a half on a, a page. It's the work that's been done before that page gets drawn, which I think is difficult to pinpoint how long that is. I mean, overall, I worked on this project for five years. You know, I would say that the drawing was actually the easier part. I do have a visual arts background. I think the visual language is definitely my comfort zone, but I certainly learned through this project that I absolutely love research. That was a new revelation. The drawing, as you've seen in the book, there will be those simple panels and then those really large pieces employing very detailed, sometimes detailed, sometimes simple, but vivid visual metaphors, you know, because I wanted to take the viewer beyond just pedestrian information, you know. For example, when I interviewed Jean at her dining room table and she was talking about the outrageousness of the conscription policy and what that felt like as a woman, as a mother, I couldn't just draw her at her dining room table saying I was outraged. It would lose some translation. I had to find ways to communicate that emotion that I felt from her in a very visual way. And hence this this image of all those women holding their newborn sons who are also holding M16s. That sense, that absurdity of your child being taken away and a gun put in his hands. Mm. Miranda, one of the strengths of the graphic novel is that you can do that interior access dreams, imaginings, psychological disturbances, all that can happen on the printed page with a graphic novel. Yes, that's right. It's an extraordinary medium for extending our understanding of concepts, finding a more empathetic place to bring the reader. The fact that a graphic novel is made by hand as well is something that the viewer can see and they connect with that. Compared to writing a story with only words, is there something of a feedback loop for you as you create an image? Does that image come back into your mind and enlarge your imagination ready for the next panel or for the next chapter within the book? My old film school professor, Turplet, said to us one day that stuck in my mind, literature is about thought to image and cinema is about image to thought. And thought's the nub of all this, isn't it? Our percepts, our thinking, our cognition. So as you create that imagery, is there a bit of a feedback loop for you as a creator? I think it's more like joining the dots than a feedback loop. Does that make sense? I have this kind of ocean of information, both academic information in text and I have visual information and I'm constantly swimming amongst it, trying to pull the ideas together, find some meaning in it all, find new meaning as well, to try and amplify the meaning in a way through through drawings in, in a very emotive way. 
Miranda, you do have quite a few words too. So let's talk about how you snuggle together words and images. That's a never-ending topic of debate in the creative world. Words and images, it covers a lot of different ground. Movies too, of course, dialogue and imagery. It's a very complex business, words and images going together. You've got the dialogue balloons. Do you write those as you're going or do you come back and do those later? Is that a unified process? It's very non-linear. So I often think in small bite-sized scenes where there might be conversations and I, I rough out thumbnails in a very messy, erratic way. I can sort of break down a scene and these kind of get arranged on my living room floor in this very hectic manner and trail through the house in, into different rooms and I feel like I, I'm just trying to figure out how the, all these kind of seemingly disconnected things can can be connected. I do think a lot in words, and then sometimes I think purely in pictures. For example, that Save Our Sons chapter scene that I described earlier, that was also sparked by this fragment of paper with these words of genes that I found in the the Victorian State Library in the, the political ephemera collection, and they prefaced the chapter, you know, I didn't bear him to carry a gun, I didn't bear him to kill somebody else's son, something along those lines. And those words had such a powerful effect on me. They, they just embodied that outrage that she described to me. But how would I draw that you know and it took me a year and a half t- until I the image came to me so so sometimes there's a really detached kind of process there in the making you've alluded to your visual thinking and I'm guessing am I right that you were a pretty visual child the nib was hitting the paper at a pretty early age it was yes I think drawing materials are probably my earliest memories and uh, my father being an architect used to come home with these great big pieces of paper with with architectural drawings on one side and we would turn over these enormous pieces of paper and have this great big canvas to draw on with with pencils and felt pens and so forth and uh, yeah I used to just spend endless hours drawing and I remember around the age of eight I think I started making small books and and, and stapling them together and both writing and illustrating. This is a common tale, isn't it, of people who are very good at what they do later in life, that it starts so early. And I don't know what that says, but amongst the theories about creativity and human intelligences are different domains where visuality and language, etc., compete in many ways. Obviously, they compete in your creativity too, because you use words. And not only those dialogue balloons we referred to earlier, but also little slabs of descriptive text and little mini histories, etc., that you use within the body of the, the visual images. How do you see that ongoing nexus between the words and the pictures for you as a creator? I think I've always had less confidence with words than with images, but I do have a great love of words, so I just have to do the work. I have to be patient. I also have to understand that as a graphic storyteller that it is actually the graphics that are doing the heavy lifting, and so I don't write in a traditional kind of prose 
style that would become way too descriptive and that would ultimately compete with the imagery. So I feel like, as I said, the graphics do the heavy lifting and the words serve the graphics. The graphics also quite often have a syntax of their, their own and they do storytelling without words. It's quite different from creating an illustrated books where uh, the illustration is more of a, a supporting thing. It, you know, as a graphic storyteller, I really exploit all kinds of mark making to tell the story. What sort of obstacles does creating imagery put in the way of storytelling itself? Sometimes I feel that I just can't say enough about the subject because of, you know, being limited to six or seven panels in, in a page, obviously in a page of prose I can say 10 times more but then I can work with the the strengths as well and and I feel like certainly employing visual metaphor is my favorite way of exploiting the medium to create meaning to invite the reader to to see certainly the history that I'm writing about in a, a different way to be more emotionally involved in in what I'm writing about. Marina, a moment ago you referred to the syntax of creating these images and let's look just for a moment at sequencing. We're so used to it, aren't we? From mm. comics, from the movies, from editing and of course behind the process in cinema is the storyboarding, the sequencing of it. It may change of course in the editing room and it normally does. How do you view sequencing in the way that you use it? The panel becomes almost the building block, doesn't it, of the storytelling. That panel, whether it's that simple panel you describe or the more complex layered panel, and like modern television, digital television, you can put little sub-panels like inserts as well within a main panel and have little flashbacks and little sub-comments, etc. So all that's there for you. But the actual storytelling sequencing does intrigue me. We're so used to it and we accept it. It wasn't always within our culture, that sort of sequencing, that visual sequencing. What is that about and how do you deploy it, the sequencing? Sequencing panels is, is to me, a little bit like creating a piece of music. I think of it like that, perhaps because I have a musical background getting the right balance in the imagery, in the composition, the interplay between text and image, creating a beat. Sometimes we create a silent panel and we call that a, a beat in, in graphic language where the, the reader gets to just stop and absorb what's happened in the previous panel. Maybe it's just an image of someone picking up a cup of tea uh, or opening a door. You know, just these little things actually really are quite important. And in designing a page also, one has to be aware of where it falls on the, the left or the right. If you want to surprise a reader, you need to make sure that that's going to be on the left hand of a page, not the right. So, you know, unlike film where you, where a filmmaker can, can control the, the duration of imagery, with graphic literature, you're kind of at the mercy of a, of a reader who may suddenly pick up the book and go to the middle of the book, or they might actually look at the end of the page before they look at the beginning of the page. So you want to be very careful how you kind of sequence things. That's very interesting, Marina, because as you say in the movies, the director and the editor have complete control over that time-based medium, but it depends on how quickly I scan the page, isn't it? The left page, and then I get to the bottom of the right-hand page, 
I want to turn the page then and pick up the story again and, and something has to happen in that top left-hand panel on the left-hand side. So it's not only the panel, it's the page. The page also has a paragraphing or some other sort of syntactical effect as well, the page as well as the panel. Exactly. Of course, Underground is on print. It's ink printed on paper. Now, I guess you have noticed as much as I that a lot of our political cartoonists, and I love political cartoons, cartoonists have been wrenched away from the printed page and somehow recycled into our digital screen awareness. A graphic novel is essentially on the printed page for you, even if I might look at it as I have with yours, because you send it to me as a PDF on my iPad screen. Do you see this essentially as a print form? I think it's best enjoyed in its print form. They are considered to be art objects. There's quite a kind of almost sensual pleasure that comes from holding the page, turning the page, smelling the ink. And uh, I don't think we'll ever lose that. And, and while we do have the convenience of having downloadable ebooks, I don't think they, that they will ever replace the object themselves. And, and I think that goes for just printed prose as well as graphic novels. But I think, I think graphic novels will never go out of print for that very reason. Just art is just meant to be experienced in a sort of three-dimensional way, I think. Perhaps this is an art form that won't go online as easily or as as supinely as, as so much of our other creation. I think they will coexist. Creations will exist online and in print. And I think it's fantastic that they do exist online because it, it generates so much more accessibility as well. We can't always afford to buy graphic novels every week. And so there are some incredible platforms by creators to supply online material. The Nib is an extraordinary platform, in fact, with daily cartoons, generally political stories so and social commentary that can come into your inbox every day. You mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation how diverse this realm is. And if you walk into some of the specialist bookshops, which have comics, manga, graphic novels, etc., whoa, there's such diversity and such excitement, visual excitement going on. So where does the graphic novel, in your view, as a creator of graphic novels, sit within that constellation. And I think as part of that constellation are children's illustrators and children's storytellers. So where do you see yourself sitting within that constellation of graphic illustration, comics, graphic novels, etc.? I call myself a, a graphic storyteller concerned with social commentary and social justice certainly more attracted to the, the stories that fall between the cracks. And the medium is in, incidental to me. I'm driven by the desire to tell a story. The graphic storytelling medium is what serves me best and it's what I'm drawn to and I feel like my skills seem appropriate. Any influences on you? Any of the great comic creators, great graphic novel creators have really influenced you? You've gone, aha, there's a technique I hadn't even thought of. I'm going to internalize that and use that within my work. Any great influences on you? Very much inspired by some of the, the early woodcut artists like Kat Kolwitz and the creators of those silent books, Otto Nuckel and Lynn Ward and their social commentary, but with such vivid black and white imagery and lots and lots of visual metaphor. That richness has definitely informed my work. But in terms of comics, 
Certainly the landmarks like Maus, Archspiegelman's Maus was an early, very early inspiration that came out back in the 1980s. There's just been such an explosion in diversity of, of artists around the world. And I love the fact that I'm reading creators from, you know, America, Europe, Asia and the Middle East and Australia and that we are such a, an incredible growing global community of, of creators. As you said, this was a long project. Were you glad to see the end of it? Yes, I, I confess I, I was. The other day I was listening to a Russian animator, Yuri Norstein, talk about his work process in animation. He says, you know, when people ask me what it's like making an animation, I say to them, well, it's a bit like writing a letter to yourself in an asylum. And when a friend asks me, what are you writing about? You say, I don't know, I haven't received it yet. <laughs> and so when he said that, I thought, gee, that's a lot like making a graphic novel. It seemed to just never end. And you, you're never really quite sure where you're going. <laughs> and if you get there. So an obvious final question, have you a sniff of your next project, another journey that you're going to hurl yourself onto? No, I, I feel like I've gone back to the playground at the moment and I really want to pursue small projects, perhaps some graphic essays. I have a children's book idea. I just think after doing such a big project, it would be wise to do some smaller things to sort of recharge, but also see if some of those smaller projects may be a segue or gateway to something larger. Graphic novels are not something I really pursue. They kind of sneak up on me. But even when they sneak up on me, I want to be really sure that going in for a long haul is what I really want to do, considering how much time and energy they take. Miranda, thank you for being with us in the Transit Zone. And again, thank you for Underground, a delight of a book. And thank you for creating it. Thanks again for having me, Peter. Our guest this time in the Transit Zone, Miranda Burton. Her graphic novel is titled Underground, Marsupial Outlaws and Other Rebels of Australia's War in Vietnam, published by Alan and Unwin. I've included links to Miranda's website and other relevant sites within the on-screen text for this podcast. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We always welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. Transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon, right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit, the transit Zone. zone.